take out your Bibles and turn to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verse 10 to 14 today. We'll also put it up on the screen for you. And uh, today I want to talk to you about uh, gospel blessing, how the gospel transfers us from a position uh, that was cursed to a position that is blessed if we believe in it. And that's what the text is about. So I want to read it to you today, Galatians 3. Uh, 10 to 14. We'll read through it once through uh, right now, and then we're going to actually read through it a second time, verse by verse, line by line, uh, throughout the teaching. All right, looking at verse 10, Paul writing, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, verse 11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But, verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this little brief paragraph, I'll pray in a moment, but this little brief paragraph, Paul quotes from the Old Testament four times, and he also alludes to a major Old Testament figure one time, Abraham. So he's going back to the Old Testament still to build his case for the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this passage. Lord, we come to you today thanking you that though the path to acceptance by you of law-keeping, of perfection, of, well, I'm a good person, Though that path was blocked by our imperfection and sin, Lord, you came and you took the curse, became a curse for us on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We just sang of that this morning. We thank you for your cross. We thank you for your great sacrifice. We thank you for substituting yourself for us. And then, Lord, as the word says here, we thank you that when we believed, we entered into the blessing of Abraham, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, helping us to live a life better than we ever could have lived and just trying to keep the law in our own energy. So Lord, we thank you. We pray that you'd speak to us this morning from Galatians. Thank you for your holy word, for leaving it with us and to us. And we pray that by your spirit, you'd help us to understand and apply it today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, how can a person enjoy and experience God? That's really the question at the heart of this passage. How can someone be fully human as God designed, as God intended? How can someone be released from paralyzing guilt or paralyzing shame? How can a person attain to abundant life? How can, how can someone be set free? How can someone be truly alive? Uh, this passage that we just read together and we'll, can, we'll read again as we move through it, uh, this passage presents two 
possibilities or two answers to those questions. Uh, one path and the path that I'm going to promote this morning, that Paul promotes this morning in this passage, is the way of blessing. Uh, the other path is described as cursed. Uh, one path gets to God by trusting in God and trusting in the gospel of grace. Uh, the other path gets to God by keeping a righteous standard that God has designed without any slip-ups, without making any mistakes in the keeping of that righteous standard. And what we'll learn today and what we learn all throughout the Bible is that when it comes to God's righteous standard, even one disobedience, even one uh, sin, even one instance of guilt renders us, this text tells us, as cursed before God. Uh, Paul makes this point again in the opening verse of this passage. Like I told you, he's quoting from the Old Testament a lot in this passage, twice from Deuteronomy, once from Leviticus, once from Habakkuk, and then also alluding to Genesis when he talks about Abraham. But in verse 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy when he says, for all who rely on works of the law, in other words, to be approved by God, are under a curse. For it, is not, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, according to Paul and according to the Bible, God has a law. And if all things in his law are abided in at all times by a human being for the duration of their lives, then that person would be righteous before God. But by breaking just one law, like Adam and Eve, we become guilty and put under a curse. Uh, the book of James makes the same point when it says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of the whole law. Uh, you could uh, imagine this illustrated by imagining a cargo container that's dangling from a large chain that's attached to a crane. If just one ring on that chain fails, the container, of course, is going to plummet to the ground. Every link of that chain must hold its own or else the chain is no good. And that's how it is with God's law. If even one part of God's law is broken at one point, perfection on the part of the human is lost and a different route to God must be found because that route is now closed. And of course, the Bible teaches that every single one of us have at least one link in the chain that has been broken. And many of us would say, oh, I got plenty of links in the chain that have been broken. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that route is closed. We cannot be accepted by God by that route. So we have to embrace a different path to becoming acceptable in God's sight. And that path, as we've been studying in Galatians, is the path of the gospel. Through Christ, we can escape the curse of being barred from God's kingdom, a kingdom that's filled with goodness and joy and love and peace and selflessness and forgiveness. That kingdom cannot be enjoyed on the merit of our good works. And Paul, like I said, takes these four passages from the Old Testament to prove it. 
I think that when Paul quotes these verses, these are probably verses that when Paul went from synagogue to synagogue throughout the Roman Empire, uh, his method was to go first to the Jew and then preach to the Gentile population. And I think that when he went to the synagogues all throughout the Roman Empire, these are some of the texts that he used to declare the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And the logic of this passage and these quotations is really simple. The righteous standard of the law promises a blessing if you keep it in its entirety, but no one keeps it in its entirety. So anyone who relies, the text will tell us, on keeping the righteous standard as a way to God is doomed. The word is cursed in the text. We must instead put our faith in the promise of the cross of Christ because on the cross, Jesus was doomed or cursed for us. And if we turn to Jesus, we become like Abraham, recipients of the Holy Spirit. So a summary of this passage is basically this. Through the gospel of grace, we're transferred from a position that is called cursed in the Bible to a position of blessing. All right, so how does the gospel do this? How does the gospel transfer us from curse to blessing? And I wanna think from uh, verse 11 through 14 about three ways that the gospel does this. Okay, the first reason that the gospel transfers us from curse to blessing I've already alluded to it. It promotes, number one, the way of faith. It promotes, number one, the way of faith. Like I said, uh, this text is showing us, as the Bible does, that there are really, in a sense, technically, two ways to be accepted by God, two ways to God. Uh, the works of the law or faith in the gospel. Perfection or the borrowed perfection of Jesus. Total obedience outside and in, or confessing the need for someone else to rescue you. The law of God or the grace of God. And the gospel is the message that presents this better way of faith to us. Not works, but faith. It tells us to believe something. Now, to prove this point, Paul used two passages from the Old Testament. The first one came from the book of Habakkuk. Look at it in verse 11. He said, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and here's the quote, the righteous shall live by faith. So how does the righteous live according to that quote? By works? No, he's using a quote that says the righteous live not by works, not by sinless perfection. The righteous live by faith. Uh, now, last year, we took our time, uh, I think it was four weeks, uh, to, as a church, study through the book of Habakkuk together. It was actually one of my favorite studies last year. I really enjoyed digging into that book. And Habakkuk's story is that he was a, he was a godly man in Israel in the Old Testament period. And he grieved because when he looked at his home nation, the people of Israel, he saw Lots of rebellion against God, lots of sin, lots of guilt, lots of living that was incongruent with the revealed law of God. And he struggled with it. So he went to God and he complained about it. His thought was, God, it's like you're inactive. It's like the law is paralyzed. It's like you're not doing anything. And it's like you don't see all the evil that I see. Perhaps you've had that feeling even from time to time before the Lord. Well, the Lord responded to Habakkuk by telling him that he 
did see all of the evil that Habakkuk saw and more, and that he was not inactive, but that he was preparing to do something very significant about it. What he was going to do, according to the book, is send the Chaldean armies or the Babylonian armies to attack the people of Israel. Now, those were people who, in Habakkuk's mind, were more wicked than the Israelites. So Habakkuk objected to God. He says, God, how can you use people more wicked than us to judge us or discipline us or chasten us or put us through a hard or difficult period? And he gave his complaint to God very vocally and in a very robust way. Then Habakkuk said he went to his watchtower and he waited to see what God would declare to him when he was corrected. And as he waited, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, God's response was that the righteous live by faith. In other words, the righteous lean on God. They depend on God. They trust God's process, God's way, God's methodology, and they throw themselves upon him. And Paul used that text from Habakkuk chapter 2 as another evidence that righteousness has never come through the meticulous keeping of God's law. Sometimes you'll hear people say that about the Old Testament. Oh, in the Old Testament, they kept the law and that's how they were saved. And in the New Testament, we believe the gospel and that's how we're saved. But look at what Paul said in verse 11. He said, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And by trotting out Habakkuk and Abraham, he's trying to demonstrate that justification by faith has always been the way. No one is justified by keeping the law, none. As Thomas Schreiner wrote, faith is a needy cry for God. Well, works try to impress God. Faith is a hand reaching out for help. Well, works insist that no help is needed. Faith trusts that God alone can accomplish salvation while works smuggle in human effort and cooperation. I want you to imagine this morning a, a tall mountain that in the wintertime serves as a popular ski slope. Uh, attached to that mountain, built onto that mountain is a tram, and that's one way to get to the top of the mountain. But in the summertime, the snow melts, and this mountain also has trails that zigzag up to the top of the mountain. So if I were to ask you, what are the ways to the top of the mountain, you'd say there's two ways. There's the tram, and then there's the trail. But now imagine that every human on earth was struck by a condition that rendered them completely paralyzed. Though there is a pathway up that mountain, though the trail technically is a way to get to the top, no one would be able to climb it. We would all need to take the tram. And that's how it is with the pathways to God. The law is a way, but it doesn't work for anyone. We've all been infected, paralyzed by sin. But the tram of the gospel is there, ready for anyone who will enter in to its doors of grace. So that's one way that Paul tried to help us see that the gospel blesses us. It brings us into the way of faith. 
But he had another verse to point out that same truth. This verse came from Leviticus. You're probably familiar with it, and you probably quote Leviticus all the time to your friends. Paul said in verse 12, he said, but the law is not of faith. Rather, here's the quote, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, some people in Galatia might have been wondering at this point in Paul's letter if faith and works, if the gospel of grace and the law were actually more compatible than Paul thought. Maybe they might have thought we can both preach and emphasize justification by faith and also by works. Maybe the False teachers or the teachers who had come in after Paul into Galatia were right. Maybe there's the gospel of grace in the cross, but there's also some works that we need to do as well in order to be saved and justified before God. But Paul quoted here from Leviticus 18 verse 5 to say, no, that's not the truth at all. The idea of the quote is that to affirm even one part of the law by obeying it is to be bound to the entirety of the law. To do any of the law as a way to be acceptable to God is to be bound to all of the law as a way to be acceptable to God. And to be clear, Paul is not only thinking of Jewish customs and practices like the Galatians were struggling with. Maybe if I add some of the ceremonial rites of the Old Testament like the men being circumcised, maybe that in addition to Jesus will lead to salvation. Paul is talking about Gentiles as well. Look at what he said in Romans chapter two. He said, when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, the 10 commandments weren't preached to the Gentile world, the law was not given to the nations, but when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In that quote from Romans, what Paul is doing is presenting every person on earth as having some law to respond to, at least the laws that's, that, that is written on their hearts by things like nature and conscience. And when we follow one of those laws, even just for a moment, we're demonstrating the existence of those laws and God will hold us accountable to those laws. Uh, for example, just as a way to illustrate this, I recently came across this interesting story about college students in the Philippines. I, I guess colleges there have been struggling with lots of cheating in their universities. So they've started this major anti-cheating push. And I guess students there have really taken it uh, to heart and they've invented lots of different ways to try to keep themselves from cheating when they're taking their exams in class. They've invented all sorts of creative ways to keep themselves from cheating. I saw a picture of one guy who, there he was in class taking his exam and he was wearing a motorcycle helmet. 
so that it'd be very obvious if he was turning his head to go look at his neighbor's test. I saw another guy with uh, old egg cartons that were rubber banded to the side of his head so that they served as blinders so that he could only see his own paper. And one of the most creative ones I saw was a guy with goggles that he'd remove the lenses and in their place put cardboard tubes so that all he could see was the paper right in front of him. Now, if you think about it, I'm sure you could make a case that cheating breaks many of God's commandments, but it breaks at least three very easily. Cheating is a form of lying, thou shalt not lie, because you're representing the answers as yours when they're not. Cheating is also a form of theft because you're stealing answers from someone else. And cheating is also, I think, a form of covetousness because you're doing whatever you can to attain a grade and a life that goes with that grade that doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. So when a person like these students rightfully admit that cheating is wrong by trying not to cheat, what Paul is saying is that they have to then live by that code at all times perfectly in order to be justified before God. If they don't have the gospel, then they would have to never lie, never steal, and never covet if their works are a path to God's acceptance. So what Paul has done is he's used these verses from Habakkuk and Leviticus to demonstrate that the gospel promotes a different path to God, the path of faith. But at this point, you might be asking the question, well, faith in what? We haven't really gotten to that point yet. It's not just mere belief that God exists. Sometimes people will say that I believe in God. Uh, it's more than that. It's a belief in something that God has done. And that's the second way that the gospel transfers us from curse to blessing. It's that number two, Christ was cursed for us. That's the thing that we must believe, that Christ was cursed for us. Uh, for this point, Paul again quotes from Deuteronomy in verse 13, if you'd read it with me again. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, here's the quote, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. All right, here's the idea of this passage. In the Old Testament period, capital punishment, when it occurred, and it was rare that it occurred, but when it occurred, it was carried out through stoning. But after the accused or the guilty died, they were often hung on a tree or a wooden stake, or a post in the ground, publicly as a sign that they were cursed by the law. They were lawbreakers. And here, what Paul does is he makes it clear that in his mind, when Jesus died on the cross, his cross qualified as a cursed tree, according to the Old Testament law. Uh, Peter agreed with Paul in this premise. When Peter preached the gospel in the book of Acts a couple of times, it, he mentions that Jesus was hung on a tree. And when he wrote the book of 1 Peter in chapter 2, he said that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
So while sin entered into the world by eating the fruit of the tree, Jesus dealt with our sin problem on the cross, which was a tree, so that we could one day with him eat the tree of life. That's really the biblical story in a nutshell. And because Jesus was hung on a tree, what Deuteronomy tells us, according to Paul, is that Jesus was cursed. Now, I don't want you to miss this. What this means is that Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. First of all, he fulfilled the law by carrying it out to total perfection. Jesus never did anything wrong. Jesus always was obedient to the word of God. Jesus lived a pure and perfect and spotless life from the very beginning to the very end. So that's one way that Jesus fulfilled the law. But this passage shows us a second way that Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law as well by consuming the curse of the law that had been pronounced on every guilty person here on earth. Paul said in verse 13, he became a curse for us. It's not just that he took the curse, but he became the curse. This is similar to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he said, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And because Jesus did not die for his own sins, but became a curse for our sins, what Paul says there in verse 13 is that he was able to redeem us from the curse of the law. Now, this is powerful. This speaks of the substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus didn't die for his own failures. He had none. He completely absorbed the curse that we were all under, a curse brought on by our own guilt when he died for us on the cross. You may have heard or even asked the question from time to time throughout this journey of yours called life, why do bad things happen to good people? It's an understandable question. We're trying to make sense of the chaos of this world. But in one sense, you could say that the biblical theological answer to that question is that there's only one good person. It's Jesus. And the reason that good things or bad things happen to that one good person is because he chose to come and suffer on our behalf so that if we believe in him, a day will come when we will never suffer and every tear will be wiped away. This is the substitutionary death or atonement of Jesus. This should not be a concept that is hard for us to grapple with. When we look at how we survive, how we eat the food that we consume, there's often a trade-off. Someone or something perishes, whether a plant or an animal, so that we can have life, so that we can be sustained. Even in your own body, there are examples of substitutionary atonement. For example, when you have a wound that becomes infected, if it's opened and pus begins coming out, what is that pus? Well, it's dead white blood cells that your body has sent to fight the infection. They have died so that you might live. So substitutionary salvation is in our very bloodstream. 
And that is what Jesus did for us. At this point, what I would say is that if you're a Christian, what I would encourage you to do is cling ever more to Jesus. Jesus bore the curse of the law for us. And on the cross, he took, the exclu- took on the exclusion from God that we so rightfully deserved. Adam might have substituted himself for God, but Jesus was God substituting himself for us. As Paul said in Romans 8, verse 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And I'm convinced that the norm is that as time ticks by in the Christian life, it's almost inevitable that those of us who began steeped in the gospel will one day drift from that gospel and begin to look down on others. But our hope is not in our goodness. We're clinging to the righteousness of another. I was talking recently to a little almost four-year-old in our church. We were having some deep combos, And uh, I was asking him how Christmas was for him. And, and then we got onto the subject of birthdays. And so I asked him when his birthday was. And he couldn't really remember the specific date, but an older sibling was around. So he conferred with them real quickly. A few whispers were exchanged. And then he reported back to me. Uh, the day of his birth. And I was like, oh, congratulations. I think it's coming up pretty soon. That's exciting. And he's like, yeah. And then he got this little grin on his face and he said, yeah, it happened on the same day last year. (laughs) I didn't have the heart to tell him that I'm on a 45-year streak of the same day. And it just reminded me that so often we become proud of things that we have no business being proud of. Jesus died for us. Jesus shed his blood for us. If you believed in him, he brought you into his family. We are all leveled by the cross of Jesus, not superior to one soul on the face of this earth. The last thing I want you to see, though, from this passage, not only does the gospel bring us from curse to blessing by showing us the way of faith and showing us that Jesus consumed the curse for us, but the third reason the gospel transfers us from curse to blessing here is that it brought the Spirit to us. Um, What the Bible teaches is that because Jesus died and rose, When you believe in Jesus, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You become a recipient of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's God himself. And he, if you believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to make his home within you. Uh, Paul said this truth here this way. Look at verse 14, our last verse of the morning. He said, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, in our passage last week, we talked a little bit about the blessing of Abraham, but here Paul gets very specific about what it is. He says, ultimately, the blessing of Abraham leads to the promised spirit. Old Testament prophets 
had been predicting for many years that one day the Spirit of God would bring in a new covenant and begin living inside of his people, transforming them from the inside out. And the Galatians knew that they had experienced this gift of the Spirit. In fact, in the first five verses of chapter three, Paul had interviewed them about that. No, don't you guys remember that you began in the Spirit? Don't you remember the things that the Spirit was doing in your midst? Uh, they knew all about that. And now Paul labels that gift of the Spirit as the blessing of Abraham. It's an amazing title. Now, God had promised Abraham that through his, through his line, his descendants would come a nation that would bless all the nations on earth. That blessing came through the gospel of Jesus, a descendant of Abraham. But here, Paul says that the gospel brought the spirit of God to live within us and that that ultimately is the blessing of Abraham. Now, you might be thinking about this, thinking, okay, this seems a little bit random, like, a, like an argument that's just brought in from nowhere. Here we're having this debate about justification by faith versus works, and he's pulling out all these scriptures, and now we just got the, this random truth about the Holy Spirit coming into the argument. But this is not a random argument from Paul at all. It's perfect timing. You see, over and over again, all throughout the First Testament, God's prophets and God's priests and God's kings, they pleaded with God's people to obey the law. And now here we're reading in the New Testament of this apostle, this figure named Paul, who seems almost to be belittling the law. Is the law worthless? Is the law of no effect? Is it meaningless? But the thing is, is that in the Old Testament period, whenever the people generally submitted to God's law, a beautiful society began to emerge. And the people of Israel would drink in the blessing of God. The law, in other words, gave them just rules for how to live, how to govern a society, how to worship. It governed them for good. It restrained them from evil. It blessed them in many practical ways. It just couldn't justify them for salvation before God. And when we believe in the gospel, here's what happens. The Spirit of God comes to live within us and he begins to help us live for God. As Paul will say later, the Spirit helps us love and the whole law, according to Paul, is summed up in that one word, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So in a sense, here's why Paul is saying this here. The Spirit comes along in your life if you believe in Jesus and helps you live according to the very law that you could not keep before he came into your life. So for me, when I read the Old Testament, what I feel like I'm reading is principles that I am able to now adhere to only by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I abide in fellowship with Jesus, John 15, his life flows into my life and I'm empowered and transformed to live in the way his law promotes. I'm not justified by that law. I'm not approved by that law, but I can now grow into doing more and more of that law because of the spirit living within me. And life in the spirit is wonderful. He is wonderful. He's like a battery that energizes us for the life of faith. 
He's like a lamp that illuminates the path in front of us. He's like a fire that warms you from the bitter cold of life and burns off the impurities found in life. He's like a mirror that shows us where we need to change. He's like water that satisfies a deep thirst within. He's like wind in our sails propelling us to our next destination. And he's like a guide who comes along and leads us on the next leg or stage of our journey. Life in the spirit is so good. Jesus even announced to his disciples one day, you're weeping because I'm departing, but it's better for you, it's advantageous for you that I would depart because if I don't depart, then the spirit cannot come. Life in the spirit is a good life. I was recently scrolling through my Amazon Alexa app on my phone and I came across a plugin called Alexa, what should I do with my life? <laughs> I thought to myself, that is terrible. If you need that, you need something more than that. I think, I think Amazon's answer would be buy as much from us as you possibly can. We're searching. We need direction. We need guidance. But that's not something that we can get from Amazon or Google but with the spirit within, we can be led by God himself. That is the blessing the gospel gives. To wrap it up, I heard a story recently of two men in, uh, I think, the early 1900s who their rowboat capsized above Niagara Falls. And the current was rapidly carrying them towards the falls but people on the shore who saw them, they threw out a rope, threw out a lifeline to them. And both of them grabbed onto this rope. But as they were holding onto this rope, one of them saw this large log that was passing by. And probably because of the panic, his brain probably thinking to himself in that crazy moment, this rope is so small, that log is so big, he let go of the rope and he grabbed onto that log, which led, of course, to his demise. And it serves, I think, as an example that there are so many other things that we might grab onto or trust in to try to be approved before God. They might even look like they make better sense than the gospel of grace by faith. Assuredly, what God really wants is religious activity. That will please him. Assuredly, what God really wants is prayers. That will please him. My good deeds will please him. I'm a good person. That will please him. But what this passage tells us is that only Christ can deliver us. We must cling to his cross. We must rely on him. We must depend on him alone. And when we do, we escape the curse of the law and we enter into the blessing of the gospel. It brings us into a life, not of works, but of trust in God, faith in God. It reminds us over and over again that Jesus took the curse on our behalf so that we could have life, that he substituted himself for us. And it allows us to partake of the blessings of Abraham, namely by receiving the Holy Spirit that the prophets of old said would come. It's incredible that we get to live in this era where the Spirit of God is given. And with the Spirit leading our lives, empowering our lives, 
We can enjoy the very life that the law hoped to achieve, one where we trust in the true and living God, one where we refuse to worship anything that would dehumanize us, one where we are free from all forms of shameful defilement, one where we are generous and just, one where we're keeping God's rules, one where we're acting faithfully. All of those things are a paraphrase of Ezekiel chapter 18 where the prophet Ezekiel implored God's people to keep the law and live like that. But the spirit of God does this within us. It's a life where God puts his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts according to Hebrews 8 verse 10. The spirit empowering us partly by reforming us. And with this change, of perspective and fresh empowerment, our lives come to be described in just one word. We were cursed, but now because of the gospel, we are blessed, amen?